So a couple of weeks ago, we looked at how the servant single-handedly accomplished salvation in Isaiah 52 through 53. Remember, the great problem was not the Babylonians. The great problem was not the Assyrians. It's not a lack of finances. It's not health problems. The problem was our sin. Remember, our sin is what kept us out of God's favor. The wrath of God was hanging over our heads. And God sent His servant in the fourth servant song and explained to us how the servant would conquer our sin for us. How He would conquer our greatest enemy. And remember, either we pay for our sin for eternity or there is a substitute. And there is only one substitute qualified to take your sin. And that is the servant. That is Jesus Christ. Then we looked at what he accomplished through his work of salvation. The great implications of his work in chapter 54. Remember the reversal of fortunes. There was the, the woman who was without children. And God gives her children. Right? And we saw the, the nations being brought in t, into the promises of God and being saved. Then we saw the husband reunited with his wife. God, her maker, is her husband, right? And we're restored in our relationship with God. And then we saw the wondrous city that is rebuilt. And God builds it out of precious stone. And she is at peace with God founded, confident, stand steadfast in God's favor. Well, today, chapter 55 is really the end of a section. We have one more section to go, and it's going to be uh, the, the final ten chapters of Isaiah. But today, what we're looking at is an invitation. This is an invitation to enter into the work of the servant. This is an invitation to enter His promised blessings. This is an invitation to life. There is absolutely no invitation you could ever hear that's greater than this invitation. And either you're outside of His blessings or you're inside of His blessings. There's no in-between. Either the promises of God are yours or they're not yours. Either the wrath of God hangs over your head or the favor of God is on you. And so the call of this chapter is do not remain outside of the blessings of God. So we're going to look at this invitation. And first I want to ask, what are you being invited to? And notice, you're being invited to abundant, satisfying waters. It says, come to the waters. And uh, the waters there, and sometimes in Hebrew they would make a point by making it plural or by saying the same thing a couple times in different ways, or even the same thing the same way a couple times. But here the plural likely means abundant, satisfying, lots of it, like a fire hydrant of water. <laughs> Gushing water. God invites us to satisfying water. <laughs> To give us what we need. 
Secondly, you're invited to a great banquet of fine, expensive foods. We read, come buy and eat, come buy wine and milk, right? And milk and wine is the opposite of what we'll see is bread that doesn't satisfy, all right? So this is a meal. This is, this is a, a feast. This is a banquet. This is a expensive foods that come from God for you. And the banquet is spread out. It's ready for you to eat. And just imagine the dinner bell being rung, you know? And it's, it's time to eat. The food is, is hot. It's prepared. It's ready to go. The feast is prepared. And it's time to satisfy our cravings, to fill our belly with the best of foods. And then verses 3 through 5, we move past the images, right? The images give way to the reality of what we're being invited to. Those were images, right? They're images of satisfying water, images of food that would fill us to the brim and satisfy us. What we're looking at here is the reality of what we're being invited to. And notice what it says in verse 3, Come to me. The feast is God himself. And notice that this doesn't mean we're going to eat God, right? What this means is we are outside of his fellowship, outside of his favor, outside of his, his, his favorable blessings, and now we're being invited to enter his presence in favor. We're being invited back into the presence of God himself and all of his blessings. And then we see that what this means is that we are beginning to enter into real life. Notice in verse 3, the second part, that your soul may live. Coming to God is becoming really human. <laughs> it's really living. It's what it means to have life for the first time. It's to really live. It's to experience the reality of life. And then notice these words that might sound a little different than we would have expected. But coming to God is not only life, but it's receiving the eternal covenant of love that belonged to David. In verses 3 through 5. Notice what it says here, And I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. And this might be a little different than the way we often think, but we need to understand that God is telling us that in his favorable presence is love, steadfast love, covenant love, love that is everlasting, love that is sure, love that is steadfast. And all of that has to do with a love that can never, ever depart from us. It means there is a love that cannot ever be lost. It is enduring, steadfast, sure, unwavering. And that's what those words repeatedly tell us about this love and this covenant of God. God's commitment to his people who are under this covenant. You are as secure as you could possibly be. It is impossible to be more secure, to be more loved than to be in the covenant with God. His love is secure because it's built on a different basis than any other covenant that he has made. It has nothing to do with man himself, but has everything to do with God. It was not an everlasting covenant 
when God made it on Mount Sinai, but this is an everlasting covenant with man. It cannot be broken. It's indestructible. What a banquet. <laughs> what a feast. What rivers of water. What more could we want than this? We are told about this covenant that the servant who is the greater David, will victoriously accomplish the covenant and draw the nations into himself. In verses 4 through 5. Listen to these words. Behold, I made him a witness to the peoples, a leader and commander for the peoples. Behold, you shall call a nation that you do not know, and a nation that did not know you shall run to you, because of the Lord your God and the Holy One of Israel, for he has glorified you. You see, David was a witness to the nations, wasn't he? As he conquered the nations around him, he was showing that God is the true God. And he protected his people. And he defeated their enemies. He poured out his love on them by giving them victory as their commander and their king. But only the Messiah could fully fulfill the role of commander and leader of his people. And he did it in a greater way than David ever could. David was a type, but the Savior is the ultimate Savior of his people. He leads them to victory, but how does he do so? He does, through, he does so through his own life, through laying down his own life, through his own death. He gives victory to his people and leads them over their enemies. And because of his work, the nations come running to Christ and to his everlasting covenant feast of love. He draws them to himself through the servant. So what you're being invited to today is abundant, everlasting life. God says He can satisfy your hunger. He can satisfy your thirst. And notice that this is the way that God presents the gospel. He offers Himself as our joy, our peace, and our satisfaction. And obviously, we've got to separate this from the health and wealth gospel that's out there, right? That says that God is going to somehow give us a, a lot of money and, a, and good health. I mean, that's, that's a junk, right? But this is the real deal. This is real, everlasting joy. This is real, deep-down joy that you can have even in the hardest times of life when you're crying in despair. And this is love that never ends, has no beginning and no end and can never be taken away from you. This is satisfaction that you'll find nowhere else in this world. Jesus gave the gospel the same exact way. He said, I am the bread of life in John 6, verse 35. He says, whoever believes in me, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. John 7, verse 38. In one way we can know that this is a God-honoring way to give the gospel. This is a good way to give the gospel, by the way. And one of the ways we can know that is that God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in Him. And we know that our greatest joy in God's glory are not opposed to each other, are they? When we find our joy in God, He is glorified. So as we give the gospel to people, you can say that God is most glorified as you are most satisfied in Him. Enter into the joy of the Lord. That's what we're offering the world. Second, who is invited to this feast? Only those who are thirsty are invited. 
It says, come everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. Now everyone knows what it means to be thirsty, right? Everyone knows what it means. This is a common universal uh, feeling that we all have. But this is not talking about a physical thirst, is it? This is talking about a spiritual thirst. And every one of us, this is a universal thirst that every one of us has. Every one of us is not satisfied outside of God and cannot be satisfied outside of God. Now the reality is some of us suppress that thirst, but everyone has that thirst, whether we'd like to acknowledge it or not. St. Augustine explained, explained um, it best in his famous words, Thou hast made us for thyself, and our hearts are restless until they find rest in thee. And those of us who feel this thirst and acknowledge it are those who are invited to this feast. You must feel and recognize a thirst for God if you were to come to this feast. Secondly, the invitation goes out to those who are poor, who have no money, and they know it. Listen to the words. He who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. You know, it's really interesting, isn't it, that usually if you don't have any money, if you're poor, that you're disqualified from being invited to something, right? It doesn't usually qualify you for something, but here, having no money qualifies you to be invited to this feast. It's totally backwards than we ever would have imagined. But the question is, what does it mean to have no money? And the answer is, once again, this isn't physical money, is it? This is spiritual money. This is talking about being spiritually bankrupt. This means you have nothing to bring to the table to buy yourself a ticket to the feast. Like being thirsty, every single person is impoverished. This is a universal problem everyone has. And those who recognize and acknowledge that they have nothing are the ones who are invited to this feast. Isn't that what Jesus said? Remember some of the words that Jesus said? Over and over again, we hear this invitation from Jesus based on spiritual poverty. He said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Matthew 5, verse 3. Jesus also said, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Luke 5, verse 32. I love the encouragement, Grayson. <laughs> Everyone is a sinner. Only those who recognize it are those who are invited. We must first recognize that we are sinners, that we have nothing to bring. We must come empty-handed, simply to the cross I cling. And we bring nothing with us. The most fundamental problem is our failure to recognize that we are thirsty and our failure to recognize that we are impoverished. That is the most fundamental problem we have in this life. We are often like the church in Laodicea in Revelations 3.17. You say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. And the, the, the amazing way that God works is his law shows us how impoverished we are. Right? The law cannot save us, but it reminds us and crushes us and shows us how impoverished and spiritual bankrupt we really are. Now you might wonder, how can you ever get into this banquet if you don't have any money? And the answer is that it's free of charge. And the reason it is free of charge is because someone else has paid for it. 
You know, we have to understand that just because it's free doesn't mean it's cheap, right? God is not offering us a, a, a ticket to uh, um, the, what are those things called? The, um, the food court. <laughs> you know, this is a lush meal. This is an expensive meal. And someone else has paid for it. Notice it says, come buy without money. Jesus has paid for the meal. He has bought it. And so we come freely to the meal and eat what he has bought. Praise God that it's free because you could never have afforded it. You are to come just as you are. And so those who are thirsty and impoverished are invited to the feast. Blessed are those who realize they are impoverished. Blessed are those who recognize their thirst and who come to the feast. Third, why do you need to hear this invitation so badly? <laughs> well, the answer is because every one of us is trying to manufacture our own salvation in vain apart from God. And this is the very definition of sin. Notice the words, why do you spend your money for that which is not bread? And your labor for that which does not satisfy. And the picture here is of people trying to frantically satisfy their thirst, somehow trying to quench their thirst and to fill themselves up with food, which is impossible to do outside of God. But how much do we love to try to manufacture our own way, try to go around God's way and find our own way to satisfy ourselves? And the language here helps us to understand how terrible of a position we are in. Notice what it says here. It says, why do you try to fill yourself with that which is not bread? It's not just lousy bread. This is not bread at all. And so this is not just going to leave us empty. It's going to destroy us. It's going to kill us. This is pathetic. This is insanity. You're spending your money and getting absolutely nothing but death in return. So a great question to ask someone is, why are you wasting your money and your effort on that which cannot possibly satisfy you? You know, a lot of us are great bargain shoppers when it comes to physical shopping. We're really uh, proficient at it and great at it, but we are poor shoppers when it comes to spiritual things. One man said it this way, our world is vast as a vast marketplace of unsatisfying but costly remedies for our God-shaped longings. And this is exactly what Jeremiah said in Jeremiah 2, verse 13. He described the problem this way. He said, For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living water, and hoed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. The definition of sin is simply trying to satisfy ourselves outside of God. Sin says, I can take this mud of this world and I can somehow get water out of it. I can get good water out of this mud. But all it does is kills us. There is no other fountain. There is no other feast. Someone described sin kind of like Chinese food, right? You go and you fill yourself up and two hours later, you're hungry again. You've just wasted all this money on absolutely nothing, right? And that's very similar to this world. The gospel says, stop eating cotton candy and start eating filet mignon. 
God is reasoning with us. He says, stop wasting our lives on things that will never satisfy. Fourthly, how do you come to God? If you recognize you are thirsty and poor, how do you respond to this invitation? And the answer is in the second part of verse 2. If you're to come to the feast, you must first listen to God's word. You must listen, and you must listen diligently. Isn't that an interesting word there? Listen diligently to me, and eat what is good, and delight yourselves in rich food. Listening is our first responsibility if we're to eat of this feast that God has provided. And so the question is, how do you listen diligently? And it's almost like saying, listen, listen, listen. Listen in faith. Listen attentively. Give your ear completely to my word. For in my word there is life to be found. Jesus said, the words I have spoken to you are spirit and they are life. John 6, verse 63. And we know that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. We listen to that which is important to us, don't we? You know, someone explained it this way. They explained it kind of like a wealthy relative of ours who dies and leaves us in their will. And imagine if we're sitting there and the lawyer is reading off what we now possess. Would you have any trouble listening to what they have to say? Well, I think every one of us, as this man said, I think every one of us would all of a sudden be able to hear very well even those of us who have trouble hearing. Right? How much more does God offer us? Infinitely more. So we need to learn to hear well and listen well. If you listen to it, God's word will tell you they can only come to God by repenting and believing in him. And we see this in verse 7, first part. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord. Now, there are a couple of ways of explaining repentance here and faith. First of all, repentance is forsaking the way we were going, right? It's forsaking not like physically a path we're going, although it includes that, our actions, but also our thinking, doesn't it? We are all going the wrong way. We are all following wickedness, unrighteousness, and rebellion. Repentance is confessing the truth that my way is wrong, and going in the other direction. It's turning away from the direction we were going in. Not only in action, but also in thought. Isn't it hard to deny ourselves? Isn't it hard to reject ourselves? But that's what is required. Forsaking our way. Forsaking ourselves. And repentance is required if any are ever to come to God. But it's not only repentance, but also returning to God which is another word for faith. Repentance and faith are two sides of the same coin. If you're going away from your sin, you're going towards God, right? That's the only way to go away from your sin is to go towards God. They're one and the same thing, just two sides of looking at it, right? Going away from sin and towards God. And returning is not about geographical location primarily, is it? Although it includes that, right? It's our actions, but it's also a change in our thoughts. It's thinking God's thoughts after him. It's humbling ourselves before God and acknowledging that his way is the right way. It's a change of heart and loyalties and coming in line with God 
his actions, and his thinking. This is a complete reversal, isn't it? And what will you find on this path? You will find the compassion and pardon, which is the forgiveness that comes from God. This is the path to the feast. This brings us into the very presence of God. We absolutely are required to have forgiveness of our sins if we are ever to enter the favorable presence of God. And that's what it says here, that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. God has abundant forgiveness. God has enough forgiveness for you, and he has enough forgiveness for me. But we must come to him his way. And God has provided a way, hasn't he? Fifth, why must we respond this way? Why must we respond by forsaking our actions in our own thoughts? Well, the answer is because our ways and our thoughts are not God's ways and God's thoughts. God's ways and God's thoughts are right, and our ways and our thoughts are wrong. Notice what he says here. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. You see, we must repent and forsake our ways and turn to God because our ways are wrong and God's ways are right. His ways are the right ways and our ways are the wrong ways. You see, our thinking and our ways are limited, they are partial, they are sinful, and they are imperfect. Our minds are finite and corrupted by sin. But God's actions and God's thinking is not like ours. He is not limited. He is not partial. He is perfect. He is infinite and without imperfection. So you think about it. The gap between God's way of thinking and our way of thinking is an infinite gap. Vastly beyond our thoughts. And this is not just a little difference, is it? It's as high as the heavens are above the earth. So are God's ways higher than ours. Think about it. The creator himself and his mind is infinitely greater than the created mind. He is in a category all to himself. So we should not be surprised that God's ways are beyond ours. We should not be surprised that God says we must turn our ways to his ways. We should not be surprised when we hear from God that sometimes it's hard for us to understand and hard for us to accept. But his way is always right. You see, we should be constantly weary of our thinking and we should be quick to embrace God's ways and his thoughts. We need to humble ourselves before the word of God. He wants to reshape our thinking and reshape it in the right way and in the right direction. We need to exchange our thoughts for his thoughts. One man said it this way, we need to enroll in the school of God's thinking. Jesus said it this way, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Matthew 18, verse 3. Six, why should you respond to his word by forsaking your ways and thoughts? Here's another reason. Because his word is his means of accomplishing his every will and desire. His word will accomplish his saving purposes. God's word brings his 
purposes to fruition. And it is powerful and effective. Listen to verses 10 through 11. For as the rain the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out of my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. Now this image of rain would have been very familiar to the Israelites because of their location, right? Israel was located in the promised land. Well, not at the time when they would have been in captivity, but they were, God had brought them into the promised land. And uh, the land was fed through rain, wasn't it? They lived or died based on the rain that came from above. Egypt had the Nile, Mesopotamia had the Tigris and the Euphrates, but Canaan depended on the rain from God to come upon it. So they would have understood this, what, what God is saying here through the prophet very well. It would have been very real to them. So God, for us, compares his word to the rain, the snow that falls from heaven to make the point that it shall accomplish everything he sends it out to, to do. God sends his word out and his Holy Spirit accomplishes his every will. It will not ever return to him void. It is powerful and it is effective. The word that spoke the universe into existence has not lost one ounce of its power today. Nothing can frustrate his word from being fulfilled. For instance, what brings about our coming to the Lord? Is it not the Lord's word effectively working in our hearts? He effectually calls us and accomplishes what he sends his word out to do in saving his people. It's what 2 Corinthians 5, 2 verse 15 through 16 speaks of. And it says, we are the fragrance of Christ to those who are perishing and to those who are being saved. To one who they are, we are the aroma of death leading to death and to the other the aroma of life leading to life. Right? On some people, God, um, God determines to bring death to them through the word. In others, he determines to bring life through the word. But neither way it will accomplish God's purposes. Romans 9 verse 18 says this very thing. Therefore God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy, and he hardens whom he wants to harden. In this way, God's word always accomplishes its purpose. Seven, what is in store for those who respond to this invitation today? Well, we're given this great picture of what awaits those who respond to his invitation. We are given a foretaste of the glorious picture and the banquet that awaits us. This is a picture of our hope. Listen to these words. The, the future celebration awaiting those who respond to the invitation is pictured in verse 12. For you shall go out in joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and the hills before you shall break forth into singing, and all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. This is an, a, a celebration of uninhibited joy breaking out. This is a peace that only comes from God. This is a lack of any fear. There is absolutely nothing to fear. Only joy remains. And notice that, the, that in this celebration, the whole created order joins in and celebrates with us. For they too will be released from the corruption that has been brought upon them. And they celebrate in response. This is kind of like getting to watch the winners of the Super Bowl celebrate before it even happens. But also, imagine you are 
the winners of the Super Bowl. It's not just watching it happens before it happens, it's also you being a part of the team. You get to rejoice in your celebration before you see the fulfillment of it, the fullness of it. The future transformation of the new heaven and new earth where there is no more curse is also pictured for us in verse 13. Instead of the thorn shall come up the cypress, instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle, and it shall make a name for the Lord, an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. This is a transformation. This is a full transformation of the whole entire earth when God transforms everything. And, and we see a new creation here where the curse has ended and only what remains are the blessings and the favor and the fullness of God's provision. This new creation will be an everlasting sign pointing to the glory of the Lord forever, an eternal display of his glorious triumph. As one man said, listen to these words, it shall make a name for the Lord, the renowned creation enjoyed by a renewed humanity, ruled by the unchanging Christ. The whole point of this massive salvation is to display forever what kind of a person God is. How great God is. And all of creation will sing the greatness of God. It will declare that our God is mighty and powerful to save. And he deserves our praise and our honor. Peter Kreeft helps us to understand the effect this should have on us when he says, Now suppose both death and hell were utterly defeated. Suppose the fight was fixed. Suppose God took you on a crystal ball trip into your future and you saw with certainty that despite everything, your sin, your smallness, your stupidity, you could have free for the asking your whole crazy heart's deepest desire, heaven eternal joy. Would you not turn, return fearless and singing? What, what, what can earth do to you if you are guaranteed heaven? To fear the worst earthly loss would be like a millionaire fearing the loss of a penny, lest a scratch on a penny. Praise God, we get to celebrate beforehand in the feast that he has accomplished for us. And we get a taste of that feast today, don't we? I want to close by asking, how urgent is this invitation? Do you have all the time in the world to respond to this invitation? Is there an unlimited time to respond? And verse 6 tells us the answer. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. And the answer is that this invitation will not be extended indefinitely. He will not always be found by those who seek him. He will not only hear those who call upon him. You are not always going to be able to respond. There will come a point when it's too late. And we are not guaranteed tomorrow, are we? says here that there will come a day when it is too late, either at the sinner's death or at the second coming of Christ. God, who is the author of our salvation, is the one who has the right to withdraw it whenever he wants. There is therefore an urgency to the seeking. Seek him while you can. Call on him while he can be found. The banquet is open. The food is spread out. It's ready for you to enjoy. Seek and call mean the same thing. Go to him while you can. Come humbly with nothing but repentance 
and faith to God. 2 Corinthians 6 verse 2 says this, Behold, now is the time of favor. Now is the day of salvation. And I want to leave you with the image of Noah's Ark. Remember, there was a flood coming. God warned there was a flood coming. And the only way to escape from the wrath of God was to enter into the ark. The only way was to go through those doors. You could think fondly of the ark. You could think the ark was a good idea. But unless you entered that ark, you would not be saved from the wrath of God. And once that, that door was closed, there was no way to enter in. I want to invite you. I want to invite you. Today is the day of salvation. Look to God. He is the one who can save you from your sin. And there's no one else who can do that. He can bring you into the favor of God. He can bring you into the banquet and the feast. And you can celebrate in His kingdom in the new heaven and the new earth. Don't miss out on the greatest invitation ever. Let's pray. Dear Father, Lord, we thank you for speaking your word to us today. God, I pray that we would we would be reminded today that you would fill our hearts with praise and rejoicing to you by reminding us of your great salvation that you have accomplished on our behalf. Lord, may our joy be uncontainable. May we not be able to hold back the praise to God that you deserve from our lives. As we go out this week, may we speak of the gospel wherever we go, not because we have to, but because we want to. Because there's nothing else that we would ever want to speak about that compares to this message and the good news of the, of the gospel. And Lord, I pray that if there's anyone in here who has not entered into this feast, who's not a part of the celebration, who is trying to drink of the mud of this world and is finding that all they are doing is destroying themselves, I pray that today would be the day of salvation. I pray that you would save today by your power and your might. May you call today people to salvation. May they hear for the first time the message, the invitation to your banquet. Lord, may you do a mighty work this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.